Welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with fellow creatives and entrepreneurs about food, travel, and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm so happy to be here back with you all after about a month away. And for pretty much that entire month, I've been in Italy traveling around researching wine for my upcoming book. But I'm so thrilled, so excited about doing it, which leads me perfectly to today's guest, Rebecca Pepler. She's an author. She made waves with her book that came out last year called Apertif cocktail hour the French way, and she is currently working on a second book. We talk a lot about the process of writing a book and just the anxiety but joy of diving into a big project. So I think it's something that all of you can get something out of this conversation. I think the only way that you can write about something with confidence is to actually do the research. And the only way that you can get to that point is to get through the anxious moment that you're in right now. So in other words, the anxiety works for you if you make it work for you. That's like, I feel like that's like the title of my memoir someday, like make that anxiety work for you. Oh, I'm going to have to workshop that a little bit. But the general idea. Yes. Of course. I think that if you don't have a little bit of fear, then you're not doing it right um, in life. A bit more about Rebecca before we hop into the conversation. She is a James Beard nominated author. She's incredible. She splits her time between Paris, LA, a bit of New York. We talk about about that lifestyle, expat life, but also spreading your time around the world. She also has made big waves recently with a New York Times piece called The Aperol Spritz is Not a Good Drink. So (laughs) talk about like a controversial title right there. It was one of the most talked about, most popular New York Times articles when it came out. It was really fun to talk about that with her in retrospect. So I saw Rebecca in Paris when I was there last month doing research on bread. And when I was in Paris, another friend of mine from Colombia, Camila, just happened to be in Paris. So the three of us got together pretty briefly. um, And I have to play you this audio because I asked lovely Camila how to say keep it quirky in Spanish. How do you say keep it quirky in Spanish? Oh, mon dieu. <gasps> en français aussi. <laughs> Elle parle beaucoup, beaucoup de langues. Elle parle italiano, espagnol, français, anglais. Quel autre? Non? Je vais apprendre d'origine. In Spanish, how do you say keep it quirky? I have to think about this. So many words for quirky right now, <laughs> but I don't want it to be the... The one that doesn't, you know, convey the proper message. Okay. Because you could say, like, keep it weird. Yeah. Exactly. Or remain strange. Yeah. But that's not the same as keep it (laughs) Remain strange. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Remain Strange podcast. Se siempre peculiar. Se, like, be, siempre, always, peculiar. It would be, like, the quirkiest, uh, or the closest thing to quirky in Spanish would be, like, peculiar. Because in Spanish, when you use peculiar, uh, I don't know, in English, sometimes it, it has a, like a negative, um, you know, sense to it. But in Spanish, it's like, oh, my God, there's just one version of this. So it's peculiar. So I think it has a, a like good. The same as unique, kind of? Yeah. 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 It, it could be. I like that. Gracias. 
Con todo gusto. And now you know. Se siempre peculiar. And now, without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca Pepler. Hey, everyone. Say hi to Rebecca. Hey, guys. Well, we, actually. Yeah. Because it is nighttime. It's nighttime. Rebecca and I are in Paris right now, where she lives part of the time, which we will get into. And you are always very generous with me and sharing your space with me. So, um, so I'm lucky enough to stay in Rebecca's lovely, beautiful Montmartre flat. Thank you. I'm happy you're here. (laughs) And uh, tell everyone one of the things that we love most to do here on the balcony. So I have a really beautiful double balcony that looks out over the city and uh, a really pretty great view. And so we like to get some snacks and some wine and sit out and watch the sunset and listen to the music waft up and all of those like really like cliched fantastical things that actually do happen in Paris every once in a while. Literally. And so this brings up um, your most recent book. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Apertif Cocktail or the French Way. It came out last fall, October 2018, and it's all on the like ritual of the French apéritif, which happens. It's like a it's a nighttime ritual. It opens the evening. Um, it ends the day. Opens the evening. Uh, but the great thing about being so close to the solstice right now is we have very long nights, and so literally it's like 10 p.m. and the sun is like up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we've been aperoing. Yeah. I mean, you can start apero at 4 p.m. and and we're still going six hours later. Yeah. So so w- as we were eating, partaking, drinking, doing all of that, dinatoire. Yes, tonight exactly. As we were eating, stuffing our faces with this amazing bread because for my. <laughs> book project. I have brought back all kinds of bread for us. And then you are just a genius at putting together spreads and you put together this beautiful spread for us, this gorgeous buffalo mozzarella, veggies, some that you'd roasted, some fresh, and, and you made the observation that this is your favorite way to eat. Yeah. I also think I made the observation that you were getting a prime seed at the way I eat when I'm alone. Yeah. <laughs> Which is how you know a real friendship. <laughs> it's way. true. It's true. Or a very single person. <laughs> One or the other. One of them. But, you know, I'd, I'd love to eat that way, like a bit of this and a mm-hmm. bit of that, but not necessarily tapas style. It's less like little plates and more just like, I will satisfy my hunger as I see fit with this mouthful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And your your bread contributions, which is plural, um, really helped us with it because it did feel like we were eating like deconstructed sandwiches by the end, totally. right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I want to get more into the book experience for you, um, but I also want to bring up uh, that you just got a new book deal. So you're about to work on another book. I know you can't say too, too much, but um, can you tease it for us? Yeah, absolutely. So it's called Atab, and it's all about kind of uh, French home cooking and gathering, um, but in a modern light. So the same way that I took Aperitif and talked about this really classic, very historically rooted uh, cultural ritual, I'm uh, taking that to, uh, to French home cooking. I love how you make French culture accessible for 
other people, right? For Americans and, and anyone like Camila, who, uh, you know, my Colombian friend who happened to be in Paris and who yeah. you met and like, she's a big fan of Aperitif, your book. Um, yeah, she brought it all the way to India, yeah. which is, I mean, what a treat. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And she's awesome. Camila, shout out to you. What's going on? But it is about making something that feels super foreign accessible. Absolutely. I think foreign and also the word um, or the the fantasy of it, Um, because French food and culture and cities all have this fantasy that we all buy into um, because it's rooted in reality. We we just had a really beautiful night and it was it was full of magic and that's that's French magic. But there's a way to bring it into the home that's accessible and doesn't actually have to do always necessarily with the place that you're in, but rather the company that you keep, the food you make, the environment that you set. And that's that's the kind of behind the scenes magic of, I think, French entertaining and gathering is that you don't have to be here to do it in a way that feels wonderful and um, fantastic, but it doesn't hurt either. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned like the magic and fantasy mm-hmm. of Paris and France, um, but you know, so, mo- so much of it is rooted in reality. But um, we were talking yesterday when I first got into Paris about um, almost like the myth of mm. being an expat slash you are like, you spend ha- like half of your time in Paris and half of your time in LA and that's also shared with New York. Um, and I just, I just think it's an interesting conversation. And I think a lot of people who don't live that life, which is most people, <laughs> um, would want to be a fly on the wall for that conversation we had. So I wonder if we could, yeah, kind of recap it or what, what were you, what were you thinking and saying? Well, I think I was complaining to you a little bit more than I'll do here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we were like, yeah, <laughs> hashtag blessed. But. Yes. yes. Um, I think that there's, there's definitely this uh, fantasy that comes along with the splitting time between any place, especially like LA, New York and um, Paris. And I've been lucky enough to call all three of these cities my home. Um, but you're right. Right now I'm in, I'm in LA and Paris and, uh, the complexities of being an expat, uh, in a foreign country obviously are are intense and crazy, especially if you're getting a visa and paying taxes and have healthcare and all of these things that, uh, that add complicated textured layers that, uh, I don't talk about a lot on social media. Well, because it's not the sexy stuff, oh, right? God, no, it's yeah. so not sexy. I cry all the time, mm. <laughs> but, and like usually unhappy tears, unfortunately. Um, but it's, it's still such a beautiful life and it's, it's, you know, we do it because it's worth it, but it's definitely not as easy as I think a lot of people make it look online, myself included. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is LA Rebecca like compared to Paris Rebecca? Oh man. L.A. Rebecca is, um, I think she's calmer, (laughs) which sounds so like, you know, like she's not stoned all the time, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, she's, uh, yeah, she's a little calmer. I think it's the, the Paris and New York have a lot in common. And so when I was splitting time between those two, which is how I started, um, I didn't feel this disparity between selves as much. I still did. And also learning a new language and moving to a whole other country creates a whole other identity complex that we can get into at some point. But um, 
they have so many similarities because they're just very similar cities. They're big but small. You get in your little pocket and you kind of stay in your pocket and you create a community there, but you're still within this like really dynamic city. And I think LA is so interesting because it's so spread out and you get in your pockets, but like you drive to your pocket and then you stay in it and it's harder to get out of. Um, and it feels more like, um, it doesn't feel like living in a city when you're in LA as much as it does when you're in Paris or New York. And I think that creates a different way of thinking about life and, uh, even working. Like when I, I work from home, um, I work from my Paris apartment a lot because it's, it's very beautiful and easy to work from. But, uh, I also go to coffee shops here and, um, try to get out into the city. And in LA it's, you, you work from home. I guess there's a co-working culture there, but uh, to me, LA is much more focused on, even more so than Paris, focused on home life and like having friends over less than going out. So it seems like it's a nice balance to have both in your life. Absolutely. Although I say that and then I'm like, ugh, I never go out in Paris. I'm always having people over for dinner because I don't want to leave my apartment. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about your career a bit, uh, which is a career that allows you to have this lifestyle and this life of living in these multiple places. So, I mean knowing you and have, uh, we have known each other since we were both in New York and had no idea that we would end up living. We were, we were babies. So I've seen enough of your career to know all of the things that you are capable of and that you have done slash you don't do them all now because, which is great because, you know, that's how careers should go and you have progressed and you don't need to do the other things that you would do to pay the bills. But um, let's just talk about some of those things. So you have been a recipe developer, mm-hmm. recipe tester, mm-hmm. um, food stylist. Mm-hmm. You've like ghost written for cookbooks mm-hmm. um, and which has beautifully turned into you are a writer in and of your own right authoring multiple cookbooks now you're on your second solo venture yeah what have I missed and oh man uh I guess when I worked full-time but that was like a that's that feels like so long ago but that was also in food so you worked at tasting table it was the food editor at tasting table yeah um, where I did all of these things all in, all in one place yeah. under one, under one house. And so, and so I, I think that you, I think of you as a multi-hyphenate. I think anyone who is self-employed slash freelancer has to do a lot of things, but you tell people you're a writer, right? You kind of simplify it. Whereas I kind of ping pong back and forth, like, how do I explain what I do? How can I possibly? And then I ramble and bore people. And you're just like, nah, writer, period. Yeah, I think I was saying to you, like, uh, the the perk of being a writer that's moved to Paris is, well, people, when they find out you live in Paris, they're like super excited about it. And then they the next question is usually, oh, but what do you do? And I just have to say I'm a writer. And then if they ask more questions, I will tell them I write about food and et cetera, et cetera. But the Paris and writing thing goes together so well. There's such a deeply rooted history um, that I can kind of hide underneath that umbrella rather than when I was in New York. And even sometimes when I'm in LA, uh, I do have to multi-hyphenate myself a little bit. Like I'm a writer, I'm a food stylist, uh, recipe developer, uh, all of these things. But 
what I always wanted to do was write. And I think I've finally gotten to a place in my career where I can say that that's the main thing that I do. And I, and I, I still style, I still develop all these things, but like, I actually am a writer and I kind of, I love that part of my identity and, and I'm really proud of it. And so I, I've stepped forward with that one. Speaking of writing, you also uh, fairly recently wrote a piece for the New York Times <laughs> that made big waves. Tell us about it. Yeah, I uh, I wrote a piece on um, on spritzes for the New York Times, and the title was "The Aperol Spritz is Not a Good Drink." Quite a statement. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and to be very clear, the Aperol Spritz is not a very good drink. The Spritz is an excellent drink, and I go into how you can make it and how you make it better, um, and how it's you know how it can be improved on, and which I think all writers in food and drink try to do. They try to make everything that they write about just a little bit better, and uh, it it made some waves. It made uh, some enemies and some friends, and so so this was one of the top stories on the Times. So this was not just like food people care. This was like people care. Yeah, I think I hit a nerve that um, that we weren't expecting to hit so hard or, you know, I think it's like when you hit your funny bone and you don't expect <laughs> it to be hurt that badly. Um, and then it, every, your entire body jumps. Um, because I think, uh, especially the headline was quite, uh, controversial. And so even if you weren't reading the whole piece, you think you got an idea of what the entire piece was about via the headline. I think the the like point of the piece and how I ended it was it's the point is to think and drink for yourself. And I think that I think it hit a nerve because so many people have had that experience of like going to Europe, going to Italy, sitting outside in the piazza, ordering this like bright orange drink and it's bubbly and it's fun and it's summer and it's hot. And you're like, you're drinking Capri Sun on a hot summer day. And that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it... I think I tapped into people's intimate experience uh, with a memory rather than a drink itself. And it can be conflated into the drink, Um, which Aperol did a dope marketing job getting those two things to come together. And I think my my hope was to introduce people to a way to elevate that drink um, in a really simple, easy uncomplicated way, um, or at least think about what they're drinking and what they're putting, you know, in front of themselves and what they're making memories with. I think that you touched on something so fascinating, which is how intimate food Mm. or, you know, or drink in this case Mm -hmm. is slash can be. And I think that honestly, I think it's one reason that like the whole vegetarian thing, people have such disparate, strong knee-jerk reactions to. Like if you're a carnivore, you know, you're like, oh, and like screw vegetarian, you know, or, you know, or vice versa. If, you know, some people who choose not to eat meat that it's like, you know, because it is such an intimate decision that it's easy to be Come very personal and to get absolutely yeah and to get like straight up defensive definitely definitely and and you know everybody has a right to do what they want with their own body yeah. um and if you love an aperol spritz then like cheers kudos enjoy i will make something else for myself but like if you really want me to make you one you come to my house and like you've brought aperol with you because like it's not in my house <laughs> <laughs> um 
I will make it for you. Yeah. I will just make it with better bubbles and uh, do the best that I can to make it the best drink that it can be. Also, I feel like I just want to quickly say that Rebecca bakes the best drinks ever. Thank You're you. very, very good. Like mixologist makes it sound like too fancy. You're just like a good home. I'm going to put something delicious together and you're going to feel welcomed in my space. That's what you do. Thank you so much. It's like when people, I'm sure you get asked this often as well. Oh, you're a chef. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't work in a professional kitchen. That is a skill set that I do not have nor uh, think that I could have. um, And I respect greatly. Uh, and it's the same with mixology. Like I don't work behind a bar. I don't run a bar program. I am, I can make you a wonderful drink at home and make sure you're comfortable. You're probably drunk by the end of the night because I like to make sure that my glasses are always full and like create an experience for you. But it's, it's in a home setting and it's definitely not in a, in a bar situation. Well, and like, that's just like another really interesting and somewhat subtle distinction that people who aren't in the industry may never have thought of, but it's like all the connotations that come with different vocabulary words used to describe people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and it goes both ways. Like, I don't want to offend a chef or a bartender or mixologist that does this. You know, I do this for a living in a different way, mm-hmm. but who goes into their, their establishment every single night and serves the public. I do, I serve the public in a very different way. And it's, uh, an introverted way from the privacy of my own home behind a, a page. So you're going into book numero Duh. <laughs> That's number two for those of you who don't. Yeah. So what are you taking with you, consciously bringing with you from experience of book number one mm. to apply to book number two? I think my favorite part of book one, Aperitif, was uh, the research phase, which is what I'm in for book two right now. I, I have a journalism background. That's what I studied at university. It's um, it's what I kind of go back to whenever I kind of think about what I've always wanted to do. Um, and the research gives me a a place to kind of flex that muscle and remind myself of what my what my training is in. Uh, and so that's where I'm in right now. It's what I I learned very quickly uh, during aperitif that I knew nothing. Mm. And uh, there were so many people here to talk to and learn from and drink with. And I'm finding that to be just as much the case with book two. That's a, that's a great takeaway. Also, though, so I'm I'm thinking of earlier. You and I were talking about a bit about anxiety in the book process, and I was sharing with you that I am because I am in the research phase of my book, and that I am realizing how much I don't know, which I already knew, but it's like, oh, this is a depth of <laughs> ignorance. That I, I think the like m- the tiny bit more you learn, the more you realize you don't know enough, and yeah. it just kind of compounds on itself for sure. Totally. Yeah. Oh, and so I am enjoying the research phase, the information gathering, the mm-hmm. talking to people, the traveling around. Uh, it's, it is awesome, and I am actively enjoying it. At the same time, I am hella anxious. <laughs> um, and so I, and I want, and, and you, you know, were making me feel better about it, saying you could understand that, you could relate, you feel, have felt the same way. But I'm wondering with how, I'm wondering how you can acknowledge that this is like 
one of your favorite parts of the process. Mm. And yet it is very much hand in hand with anxiety just because it is, you know how much more there is to come. And like, how do you put those two disparate things together in your head and heart to feel good about it. I was about to say I'm very comfortable with anxiety, which isn't true. I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable, but I'm very familiar hmm. with anxiety in my life uh, in all in all places. Uh, but I think the way that I manage the anxiety when it comes to work is organization. Yeah. Right. And 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 f- like having faith in the process, right? I think the only way that you can write about something with confidence is to actually do the research. And the only way that you can get to that point is to get through the anxious moment that you're in right now. So the, in other words, the anxiety works for you. If you make it work for you. That's like, I feel like that's like the title of my memoir someday, like make that anxiety work for you. Oh, I'm going to have to workshop that a little bit, but the general idea behind it. Yeah. I mean, of course, I think that if you don't have a little bit of fear, then you're not doing it right Mm -hmm. um, in life. And, uh, and when it comes to writing about something that like you're working on a project where you are interested in these three very base things, right? Mm-hmm. And you know enough about them to like... Are you talking about me? You're saying you're you, you, bread, cheese, and wine. Yes, okay, yes okay. sorry, sorry. It's like your project. Okay. And so, so bread, cheese, and wine. So you, we all know what bread, cheese, and wine are, but now you're digging into it and trying to find the angle that you want to talk about it with, a, with an expert lens. And of course you have no idea what you're going to write about until you go out and experience it and and talk to the people that, I mean, you're talking to so many amazing people. It's insane. Um, and that's the same way I felt about Apertif. Like when I pitched the book, I knew nothing. Like I was a new expat in France, basically just realized that no one had written about Apertif in 10 years in a way that made me excited about it. Um, and also hit on the actual historical, huge historical base that it has. And so I just, I decided I wanted to learn all about it. And so I got to learn and then distill the information. Oh, Distill. Good one. Good one, you. Thank you. It's almost 11 p.m. and I'm able to pun. It's really, it's only for you, Katie. It's impressive. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I would say some people would not agree with me on that. Um, But yeah, I think if you don't have anxiety about it, then maybe you're not doing your job yeah at this point at this point right yeah yeah that's an interesting one because i feel like there's also an argument of (laughs) i feel like i don't even know if i want to go into it but because i agree i'm like well i work harder because i'm anxious and afraid that if i don't so it's like helps me but it's also like what if i just did the work without feeling anxious well, think about when we met. We were young, and I mean, I was at Tasting Table. You were at NBC.com. Yeah, where were you? I was like, yeah, I was at NBC. You were at NBC. Yeah. Um, we knew nothing. No. Like we were, we were children going to a press event, thinking we were cool. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, we were pretty cool, but <laughs> no, not cool. We. No. I feel like we were the least cool people at it, and we were like that girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be friends with her. Um, Accurate. Right? But, like, I think back and, like, I mean, I was faking everything at that point. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I mean, I had just gotten my first, like, full-time job in the food industry and was, like, 
they're going to find me out soon enough. Mm. I want to tell a story, but I don't really know how to get into it. Um, Just jump in. Right? Okay. Well, it's when you think back to, like, the things you didn't know. Like, I I consider myself fairly well-versed in the kitchen. Like, I can, for example, poach an egg very easily. I know what I'm doing. Let me also just insert here, and maybe I should have done this when you were saying, like, I don't consider myself a chef. chef. You did go to patisserie school. So you do have, like training. I I have training in classic French pastry, not in culinary. And so I can make you like a dope cake, a ghetto even. Which, which you have done. Okay. But so I, I just felt like that was, you know, related information to share, but so sorry to interrupt you. So continue. Of course. But like, uh, when I was in pastry school, actually, I was interning, um, on a food TV show and they asked me to poach an egg and I said, okay. And then I went and Googled how to poach an egg because I had never poached an egg before and I had to do it for camera. And that's just, that's, well, that's like anxiety 101, like, and also stupidity. I should have asked some questions, but it were all worked out. And now like, now I would have no anxiety if anybody asked me to poach an egg for camera, but that was Oh my gosh, 10 years ago. So, oh my God. (laughs) Her eyes just got this realization of how we have aged. But look at our skin. So glowy. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, fake it till you make it is an adage you support. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I don't, I think, I don't know if there's anybody out. I mean, I hope doctors aren't faking until they make it, but they definitely are. Yeah. Um, I mean, James Beard nominated doesn't sound like someone who is faking it till they making it. They made it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, thank you. Yes, that was that was a surprise and honor and and very wonderful. Uh, What was that? What was that um, award ceremony like? Like, what was the whole what did it feel like being there? It was fun. You know, I was in I was in the States anyway um, for work. And so I was actually supposed to be in L.A. that week. Ended up flying from L.A. to New York for the weekend because, you know, it was my first nom and it was very exciting. And I was I was really excited to go. It was fun. The The energy was frenetic uh, and interesting. Samin was um, one of the presenters. I love her so much. So it was really fun to see her and um, see her in her element and she, she killed it. Uh, and just get to see a bunch of people that I really, I've looked up to, to and admired and worked alongside, uh, and kind of be in the same room was, was quite lovely. Yeah. That's so great. I feel like this is probably a pretty good place to wrap up and say thank you for sharing your experiences. We talked about expat life. We talked about writer life and and some of the things you've done is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this up and go to sleep (laughs) (laughs) let's wrap up with the question of the pod rebecca pepler how do you keep it quirky i forgot that that was a question i almost did too (laughs) it would be really strange to uh remind everyone if you're so I do a lot of international travel because I am between two countries and uh, I have like very specific things that I do while I travel. Um, Like we were talking about it the other day, like 
I can't work on airplanes. Like I literally will bring everything with me. I have my like documents. I have my, I have everything downloaded on my computer. And then I like look at it and I'm like, Fleabag season two (laughs) happening right now. Um, So I binge watch TV, but I, (laughs) this is like a shout out to both my mother and um, my friend Alexis uh, Debascheck, who does not do this. And I'm like, she's flying here next week. And I'm like, girl, get yourself some compression socks. (laughs) Like I, they have changed my life. You know what? I got some. They were like freebies from a thing I did, but I just never wear them because I think I don't know how to wear them. What is the deal with compression socks? Look, they're not... Okay, there is one um, brand I've seen online that makes like cool compression socks, which I have not purchased. But no, you put them on. Like I get like on the airplane, I put them on. uh, They go up over your like calves and you have to get the right size. Otherwise they can like dig in um, or they don't compress enough. And then they just like keep all the blood flowing. Like, especially when you're on, I mean, the flight between LA and Paris is quite long and I fly direct. And so you're like, you're sitting there for a while and I'm not flying economy plus so (laughs) i don't know they're just amazing they like your feet aren't swollen when you get off you're like spry and like ready to take on the day i don't know they've they've changed my life that is how i keep it quirky you compression socks you've learned so many great travel tips and and how you travel best and i think that is what keeping it quirky is really all about is when you know yourself and you know what makes you happy and you tick and you just friggin do it to it download a binge worthy season and wear compression socks you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen rebecca thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for having me and also thanks for letting me crash at your flat in paris yeah can we go to bed (laughs) yes we can good night everyone Rebecca, thank you again for coming on the podcast. And hat tip to Camila for the Se Siempre Peculiar tip at the beginning. Um, All right, guys, I will be back here in a couple of weeks with an interview from my time in Italy. So excited for you all to hear that. Thank you to Funky Brian for the theme song you hear right now. As always, don't forget to review the podcast if you haven't yet. And thanks so much for listening. Until next time, don't forget to keep it quirky. Thank you.